You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast, where we equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined with my two good friends again, Hippie Prey, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. M- Dr. Mark Kissler. We got him out of the garden for just one hour. <laughs> it's so, hard to drag me out. Man. Is it, it's good to be back. He is, he is looking I was working. I was working on this video. <laughs> Not just <laughs> in the garden. I've been in the hospital. <laughs> yes, you've been in the hospital. But most you recently, did, you, you dragged yeah. me out of the garden. <laughs> Sorry, I meant just right now, as of today, you hear Mark's voice. He's been, he's been in the garden just for an hour. How are you doing, guys? Yeah, doing well. Yeah, doing great. It's good to see you guys again. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's good to be back. Uh, big thing. Hey, do you guys know this? It's our 20th episode. Hey. Oh, yay. I was going to get a kazoo. I forgot. My my sons have them here down here, but I was going to blow it. Never mind. <laughs> so we'll do something else to celebrate the big the big 20. We've, uh, so we've hit the radar of some of my colleagues in the Division of Hospital Medicine uh, at the Woo-hoo. end. So thanks to Franny. Uh, shout out to, to Franny. She's been spreading the word. So <laughs> Oh, good. Good. That's awesome. They're here to listen to your guys' wonderful voices. Uh, a couple of things to chat before we get going. Again, need reviews, love them. iTunes, go there. Uh, we might put a link in the show notes if it makes it easier. Just click on it, leave a little review, leave some feedback. That would be awesome. Patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. If you want to give a small monthly donation, that helps us get equipment and help get an editor so we can spend more time doing content uh, and less time scrambling to try to get this going at the very last minute. And if you don't want to give like a monthly gift, totally get that. Uh, you can give a one-time gift through PayPal uh, or uh, Venmo. And I'll have that stuff in the show notes as well. Um, I want to make it just a shameless plug, uh, since Mark is here with us and he is a gardener, uh, and he loves to be out in the garden. Uh, my wife did a little awesome blog on gardening. So if you guys are stuck at home and you have little ones and you're literally like pulling the hair out of your head, just wondering how on earth you're going to survive another day. Uh, I'll put her blog in the show and it's all about how to get kids outside gardening and out of your your hair, not, not out of your hair, but it's more, it's more, more genuine, but I'll put that in the show notes. It's an awesome article. It's been, she did a great job. But let's get going. We have a special guest. Today has been a part of my life since the moment I was born. So uh, her name is Angie Long. She's a li- licensed marriage and family therapist and, uh, and, and, and doing private practice in San Diego. Hey, sis. How's it going? Hey, it's like the sibling podcast day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, this is yeah, awesome. So it is. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Look at that. We're, it's, I feel like, so we're, if you can't see this, but we're actually on video. So I feel like it's this weird kind of, uh, what, what's that, uh, oh, that it's one? It's totally Brady Bunch. Yeah. The Brady right Bunch. Yeah, yeah, we're going to be looking up exactly and down. That's exactly what it looks like. This is, this is totally <laughs> Oh, man. Well, it's good to have you on, sis. Uh, I've been wanting, we've wanted to do this for a while. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. So the, the title of this episode is the, the, the Second Silent Pandemic and what's to be expected in the future. So I'm going to start with you, Sis, and just kind of let you just riff for a little bit and just talk about like what has been your experience right now? You're in California. We, 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 we're kind of like the whole spread now. We're from California to Boston. We kind of have an anchor here in the middle. We're all over right now in the U.S. What's been your experience coping yourself as well as now? I mean, you're seeing page, uh, clients right now and they're kind of what, what are they experiencing as well? What's interesting as a therapist, because so often you're not experiencing the same thing that your clients are coming to you for. And I actually have a couple clients who work in the mental health field and do this work themselves. And it's, it's, it's interesting to have that. That's a new area, I think, for a lot of us. And then there's most, so many of us have moved to telehealth. And that's newer for a lot of people, too. I love it. It's way more accessible than it ever has, more ever has been. And 
um, people are getting used to it because there's not the option to come in the office for the most part. Um, so there's that, but people are, in terms of people who's reaching out, I have clients I've seen before who are, you know, calling to have sessions. I haven't had a lot of new clients and I'm not sure, speaking of the silent pandemic, like when my sense is that'll be a few months down the road. It's like, there are times when you're just like, I need to get through today or I need to get through this week. And the idea of trying to find a therapist, which isn't always the easiest thing to do. And then to go and spend close to an hour just talking about all these things that often we push away, we don't want to talk about, and it can bring up pain. And so um, not a lot of new clients, but a lot of uh, older clients and then existing clients who've chosen to do telehealth. I could, well, I could imagine because like when I first well, became isolated in the house. I, uh, you know, I do some clients on the side and I'd always, always prefer to meet them in person. Even them, it's like technology, like guru. Like I like, I like to be a part of it, but I would just, I, I was always had this like hesitation to do a zoom meeting. There's just something about it that made me feel more vulnerable or something, or just maybe just out of touch. So I could imagine that if, if, if the normal practice of being a, doing therapy has been going to like a physical place and then all of a sudden now it's telehealth, I would be, I would be second guessing more than I would normally be. Cause I just be like, Oh, I, I don't know if I want to make this leap of like having basically you're inviting someone into your home, which is, it seems like a whole level of vulnerability, which that's another hurdle to probably get over uh, when you need it as well. It is, it is strange and new. And a lot of people are only trying it because it's the only option, but most people are pleasantly surprised that they still get some of the benefits from the sessions. It's a little, it's different. And as a, the therapist side of it, I miss Sometimes I miss, you know, the I miss the body language. I'm only seeing a small piece of what's happening. Sometimes I miss the emotions that are a little more subtle. And so my side, it's not my preferred, um, but there's a time and a place, and there's and it's it's better than just not having to do sessions or having to be in a small enclosed office together. And clearly, it's not the ideal because uh, you were just saying that we were off the off the air. We were talking about this, but the the idea that well, like our home. It's 1,400 square feet. I mean, I can hear everything. I can hear whispers. And so if you're going in to like have a therapy session and like there's ears everywhere and maybe you want to talk about one of those people, right, in your session. So now you can't even be like honest. You know, at least you don't feel like you have to kind of like filtered like, okay, somebody's listening. So that's a whole other level of difficulty, right? Have you experienced people on telehealth maybe not quite, not being quite as open as you normally have when they were inside the the, the, the counseling session at all? In the situation that you just talked about, yes. There are times when telehealth maybe isn't the best course of action. And that's an interesting judgment call right now. Who do yeah. you see in the office? And you know, how do you make those parameters? We don't really have any guidelines from our professional organizations. And so these are very much like individual decisions by therapists. I have friends who work with kids. I mean, can you imagine trying to do therapy with a six-year-old over... It doesn't work that way. It's not talk therapy for the most part. Um, yeah. Or you have uh, relationship difficulties and they live with their spouse in a one-bedroom apartment and they don't know a lot about what they're talking about. And so that privacy, I mean, you have to be able to get online to do a telehealth session. And then the other important piece is making sure our clients have a private space to talk because you're right, it does change the session. You have to feel like, okay, this really is like no one can hear me and this is confidential for it to be useful, I think. Yeah. And you were saying you've had kind of different 
responses, some positive through this issue of, of dealing with the pandemic and some negative. You mentioned the OCD thing. Uh, you want to talk about how that some people were saying how this actually kind of verifies or validates them. Yes. Like they're like, I am so prepared for this. Like I've been doing this for years, right? Like, <laughs> and I even had someone share with me that it was, I think it's very helpful for her to have someone go, I get, I get it now. Someone close enough. Like I get what you have gone through because now I feel anxious about contamination and germs and I'm maybe excessively hand washing. And, and so that can be really helpful. I mean, I think feeling understood is, you know, therapeutic in and of itself. And (laughs) so, you know, there's that piece. I mean, the flip side is, you know, their anxiety tends to be higher. And so given that I think most of us are experiencing higher levels of anxiety, you bump that up from, I always use a scale, scale of zero to 10, 10 being the worst, zero not present. You know, if you have an anxiety disorder, maybe you hover five to seven and you get into that eight, nine, 10 range occasionally. Um, And so, you know, it's challenging because if that's where you hover, then this additional challenge might send you up into panic regularly. And so that's, that's the flip side of that. That's the hard side of it. And there are some of us, I think, and some people who anxiety, for example, hasn't been very present and just going to a four or five is really disconcerting and maybe don't have the coping skills to deal with that because it's new. Um, So I I see just to my private practice is mainly mood disorders and a lot of anxiety and depression, I would say is primarily who I see. Um, Another example is I've had a handful of people say, if you had told me last year or even three months ago that this would be my life, like there'd be a pandemic, I'd have to stay at home with my whole family, I'd be responsible for my kids' education. I tell you, no way, like I could not cope with that. (laughs) And then they're like, but I'm finding I'm doing well. And so there's that piece of it too. Like I I think it's people are struggling, absolutely. Um, And there's people who are going, wow, I have more like internal resources to cope with this than I would have thought if I was guessing how I'd handle this situation. That's great. That reminds me, you you love Brene Brown. I love Brene Brown. I mean, I'm not sure who who doesn't, but but uh, and if you don't, hey, it's a free country. Uh, so it, it's the the idea. She made this line that was really powerful for me. It was it didn't apply to me, but it was this uh, that children are made for resilience. Like we get this idea, we're trying to baby them and fall, you know, just really kind of make them like they're sensitive. Their their egos are fragile. We're not talking about children right now. We 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 did in some some extent, but I think we as general we are made for resilience, and we underestimate our resilience. And so what you were just saying, you know, even three months ago, if I would know I've been stuck in my, in my house with three rugrats and be able to survive work. I'd be like, there's no way in H-E double hockey sticks, you know, right. But, but it's, it's, I'm doing it and we're just, we're made kind of same, similar kind of uh, a vein. We were talking about this before we kind of got, got on the air, but uh, sis, where do you kind of see, you were mentioning like there's two general kind of lenses by which you're kind of seeing clients and friends view the pandemic that kind of, and some, I guess this is my own language, it kind of almost paved the way they might be feeling right now. Can you kind of talk more about those two different ways by which you're kind of seeing people uh, like look at the pandemic and how that's impacting their, 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 their day-to-day life? Yeah, like I think there's these different perspectives show up in so many ways that there's this, okay, I just want to get back to normal, whatever that is. And I want to, you know, and and so as soon as I can do these things, I will do these same things. Mm-hmm. And I think there's people who are like, okay, all right, things have changed. Like it really has changed. There's new information. How do I take this in 
and adapt and change and figure out like what my choices are within this. I think, um, you know, I, I see it a lot. I think, you know, you see the anger and the protest and then you see the people who are scared to go to the grocery store. But I think underneath both of those is the same base feeling of they're scared. Right. And it comes out in a variety of different ways. Um, and so there's an opportunity, right. To figure out how do I want to take this in? And it starts with, I think, well, what's here? How am I feeling about this? What comes up for me? Um, being willing to be introspective, you can learn a lot about yourself. And so, and then you don't default to what I think of as these automatic patterns. Like, oh, I get scared, I get angry. For some people, that's how it works. Um, For some people, I get scared, I shut down, and I'm in this like paralyzed state. So, you know, there's, there's opportunities here. I mean, you see this play out a lot in politics and social media, right? And like, you're on there's so much in common and it looks so different in terms of how it's expressed, whether I'm not leaving my house or I'm protesting and can't wait to go to a restaurant. But I see them as, you know, the base is, is, is coming from the same place. And so be like being willing to just consider what your perspective is, what your sort of default habits are around thoughts, around emotions that there's an opportunity to go, okay, does this serve me? Do I want to change this? Do I want to shift into something different um, here? But the first step is just awareness and a willingness to look. Yeah. I think the, the difficulty, I mean, I love this distinction. The difficulty is it's so easy to want to fall back to the way things were because it's it's easy. It's, it's, it's the way things were. It's concrete. I know what my life was like. And this idea of uncertainty, I guess, made I want to post you like, how do you embrace uncertainty? Because for me, when you think of uncertainty, oftentimes it can mean uh, a, a greater sense of vulnerability, um, maybe a sense of weakness, right? This idea of like, I mean, I, I feel stronger uh, having a plan to deal with the past and going back to that versus actually embracing uncertainty. So somebody like me who's like, okay, this is this is some scary crap to like to like practice uncertainty. How do you actually? How do you kind of practice it? And what's, what's the goal? What, what, what am I trying to achieve by practicing uncertainty? I think of it as you're trying to increase your window of tolerance for these feelings that are difficult and that you typically want to avoid through having a plan and enacting that plan. And so, yeah, this, this idea of embracing uncertainty, it starts with labeling. There's this idea of name it to tame it, right? Like whether that's yeah. the feeling or whatever it is. So like maybe it just looks like this is uncertain and confusing. Um, and you just feel it. We we just head off into the story and the narrative right away. And we start thinking about it. And if you want to learn to be with, it's like being with sadness. It's like being with anger. You just name it, acknowledge that it's there. And then like, see if you can let it be. And when I say that and just feel it, I mean, like check in with your body. Where do I feel it? What's it feel like? Just allow it. And this doesn't have to be like an hour. I'm talking 20 seconds, 30 yeah. seconds, something like that. Which is funny. You're saying like, <laughs> I just like, you're talking to three dudes here. I'm like, no, my motto is fix it. Don't feel it. <laughs> but, you're, but, but you're telling me I need to feel it and not fix it. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a feeling oh, guy. Mark, I, okay, I, sorry. I'll feel it. I did I'll not mean to you. speak yeah, for the Kistler brothers. <laughs> sorry. Like, which is like, 
we could like veer <laughs> off into nature versus versus nurture now because we came from the same family, right? Yeah, and I'm a therapist. Totally. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. We just all of a sudden yeah, went we, off. Yeah. We're, we're, we're we going to go deep here. We're going to have to. I'm confused. I don't even know who I am anymore. That was awesome. <laughs> pull up, pull up. But yeah. your uh. point is, it, so it'll look differently for different people. We start yeah. in different places with how comfortable yeah. we are with feelings. And for some people, they don't know what they're feeling. And so it may start with just like, let's pause three or four or five times a day and go, what am I feeling? What's going through my head here? Then you'll start to, what happens is you learn um, uh, what some might consider a negative side effect is you start feeling things. (laughs) And so (laughs) then, you know, it's about being with them in new ways. And this idea of increasing your ability to be with difficult feelings is just, I mean, I think that's the basis of well-being. It's kind of how I view it. You were saying this, uh, sis, off the uh, well before we recorded. But I love when you're talking about the idea that we're kind of trying to readdress our beliefs. So we're trying to practice something, right, which we'd not normally do, like maybe feeling something and and and, and practicing it. And we talked about this thing in the beginning of one of our first podcasts. I just love the Oz principle. I, I'll put it back in in the book. But he has that period, that pyramid of of culture, which he has. We all are trying to strive for results, and those results are built built upon actions. And those actions could be bad or negative, right? They could be anxious. They could be things that are anxiety producing, and they're all about beliefs, fear, or or courage, or or, or being able to the belief that uncertainty is okay and it's not weak. Right. It actually is. A, it's, it's an OK to embrace that. But the base of the pyramid is the experience. So we need to change our experiences and realize that when I rest in uncertainty, it's OK. I was talking to Sis about this earlier, but a great practice for me sometimes is when I when I'm really afraid of something is to go back and say, OK, what are those times in my life that I was uncertain and something joyful came from it? Right. Something actually good came from it. And then I can have that experience like, okay, I'm now rehabilitating my experiences. I'm, or I should say rehabilitating. We're all, we kind of like hodgepodge and put stuff together in our experiences and we have that be our base. And now I'm widening my experience threshold. Realize, oh no, I don't just have bad experiences. I actually have some good experience with this as well. And that builds and rebuilds that whole sense of being have better beliefs and better actions and being able to look at this as more of an opportunity rather than a, like maybe a, a, a vulnerability or, or a crisis. Yeah, when you, when you have a different experience, like being with your feelings, what most people find, if you're able to do this practice of, wow, what would it be like for me to just sit and feel it? Um, what, you, what most people find is that it reduces its intensity. You feel it start to disappear and dissipate. And so that piece changes your experience, right? Then, so we'll go with anxiety. Then it becomes less threatening, right? I don't have to avoid it or make it go away at all costs, which is what people do with anxiety. People show up to therapy and they want to get rid of it. And my philosophy is, no, you learn to live with it, right? Because if anxiety cannot stop you from doing anything, it has no power. Now, if you decide I don't travel, I don't fly anywhere, you know, it can limit your life in huge ways, but being with feelings changes your experience of them. And once you have that, you're right, it does then sort of shift your perspective about things. And in that, you know, as you shift perspective, you sort of, I think of it as you bump up against some of what might be your belief system, your core beliefs about that we don't ever question, they just are there. Um, and then you can start to kind of challenge those and modify them. I love that. And we'll probably get close to ending on this. I love that idea where you mentioned about how 
we almost we need to have that space, which we do for some of us, right? We're we're home isolated to actually have space to be able to question why I act the way I act. We live a life of busyness, we're succumbed to it, and we just keep living this habitual life. And we have these actions that we produce that oftentimes come from something in the past that no longer is worth doing anymore. It's it, maybe it was a good coping mechanism when I was a teenager at twenty, but uh, I've been now a bad habit, and I've been living this anxiety. Uh, but this is a great time. So to end with this, to ask a question, like if there was somebody really wrestling with anxiety right now and just having a tough time, what's like one thing that you kind of mentioned, but like one thing they could begin to practice right now to help them, I don't know, change their experience and beliefs to slowly be able to get back control of their life again? Uh, my default for this is self-compassion. And there's a whole research field um, around self-compassion and its benefits. But Oftentimes when we're anxious, you know, we get really upset with ourselves. We judge ourselves pretty harshly. Like I shouldn't be feeling this way or this shouldn't be happening or we go into all this. And so being able to just sort of be on your own side, support yourself, which means like, ah, you know, here, here it is. This is anxiety. This is what I'm feeling. And may I be kind to myself, may I be understanding with myself. Um, is a way of being with it a little bit differently. So that's one piece. Pay attention to how you respond to yourself when you're anxious. And what you'll find, what we mo most of us find is like, how we talk to ourselves is totally different from how we talk to people we care about and love. We tend to get pretty critical of ourselves. So that's one piece. And, and the other is like, as you start to pay attention, you'll, you'll notice what are your anxiety triggers, right? And like, okay, this person, there's an emotional contagion piece to anxiety. Like I think of people in the grocery store and they talk about how anxious they're feeling. I'm like, of course you're feeling anxious. You're surrounded by heightened levels of anxiety and you feel this, your body feels it. And so pay attention to what the triggers are because then you can use those to make choices, you know, about, all right, I need to limit this. Or um, I think that's a really important piece. The news is a huge one. I mean, news is designed to bump up our anxiety. And so, you know, if you used to be one of those people that always had the news on, you might reconsider that right now. Look at how it's impacting you. And then one, I get one more one thing before we close out, because what about people, right, who uh, are on the other side of this? Who are uh, What's one thing somebody can do who has someone close to them who actually does struggle with anxiety? How do you actually be a, a helpful aid to them and not be a thorn in their side? Oh, great question. And I struggle with this, I have to say, even though I could probably help someone else with it, right? <laughs> it's this idea that uh, I think this happens, especially right now. I think it's being able to let the other person have their experience. Um, a lot of us default into fixing. Uh, and so here's what you need to do. Oh, I can do that. Uh, yeah. my, my husband has this joke. He was telling his colleagues that he was feeling really kind of panicky when we flew several months ago. And I was like, all had my headphones on listening to, well, I don't know, watching a show already. And so he kind of, he's like, I'm feeling kind of anxious. It kind of surprised him. And he's like, I looked at him, like I took my headphones off, like what? Like he interrupted <laughs> my show. He's like, I'm feeling kind of panicky. Ange. And I'm like, you're fine. You'll be fine. <laughs> This is where so, siblings come in the back into play. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was like, don't don't tell people I'm a therapist when you tell them that, but <laughs> yeah. it's the truth, right? Yeah. So I, but I think it's this idea of like we're all, especially now, we're experiencing this differently, yeah. and being supportive without getting caught into 
right or wrong. Like all these different experiences are okay. And so just allowing someone to be with difficult emotions, like this concept of holding space for them is really powerful. That's great. And if they ask for help and you have a suggestion, yes. But if they haven't asked for help, maybe you're just with them. I need to give you my $25 copay for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's been great having you on the show. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, reach out, um, connect with you, what's the best way of doing that? Probably I have a website, angielongcounseling.com, and you could email me from there. And it's just Angie at angielongcounseling.com. Great. And I'll put that so, in the show notes as well. Uh, I love your podcast. I think it's not anxiety producing. I think it's helpful. And um, thanks for having me on. Awesome. Thanks so much. It's great to have you on. Yeah. All right. Have, okay. Bye. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you. You too. Bye. I love that. She, you know, she really read it. So a couple of things, just as we're kind of, as I kind of metabolize, you know, what she said before we transition on this idea of thinking about our embodied cues, right? So like checking in with your body and it's, it's funny in this age of zoom, right? Where everything is like the, you know, the eyeballs up and, and all of our inner, you know, a lot of our interactions outside of our homes are like hyper intellectual now. And there's this, there's like a tax on that. And there's this way that I feel like sort of the richness of our uh, communal life, you know, activates all these other areas of the brain, other, other areas of our bodies that are just like, I don't know, we just like feel things differently um, when we have this such mediated experience. So it's nice to just be like grounded. Um, so that was one big, big take home. I also love, have, have we talked about restitution narratives at all no. in here or this idea? So, so there's this idea in, um, this is kind of a sociology of illness idea, um, and it comes up a lot in narrative medicine ideas. That uh, this is coming from the work of a sociologist uh, named Arthur Frank, and he has um, three different typologies, sort of the ways that we deal with illness experiences. And his he, these are particularly about you know how an, an individual encounters an illness, and he calls it uh, the three are chaos, restitution, and quest. Um, and so a chaos narrative is one in which, um, you experience the interruption of an illness and, you know, as you can guess from the name, everything is upset. It's very, it's profoundly dislocating. It's kind of a non story. Um, it's a non narrative, you know, there's these ideas of like cause and effect have been just totally disrupted. Um, and I think we experienced that kind of collectively, you know, this, this phase of chaos, um, especially early in the, in the pandemic. And, you know, the other typology, one of the, the second that he has is this restitution narrative. And this is like the, in some ways, the most American of the, of the three, um, this idea that like, I was, I was fine. I got sick and now I'm better again. You know, that everything that went away is, is back. Um, we are returning to business as usual. Uh, and there's, rightly so just a huge hunger for restitution for getting back to the way that things were getting on that narrative track you know the story i'm telling of my life and um and kind of my projects and getting back to that um and and he contrasts that through his own personal experience and kind of deep engagement with these you know thick thickly described as we call it instead of thin descriptions this like thickly very almost literary understanding of what goes on in in a person as they experience illness with the idea of a quest narrative, right? And I think there's a danger here. You can take it too cliche and be like, and you can turn it into kind of a hyper, kind of a hyper American restitution narrative where it's like the Phoenix <laughs> rises out of the ashes, you know, but, but it's not. And this is where, and this is where I think that it, you know, the name is in some ways misleading. It's far more like what Angie was talking about in terms of just this tolerance of uncertainty. 
Um, and it's not a quest of like, I, you know, I, I had this story and, and now I'm hyper that, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm me to the nth degree. It's, it's actually this like admitting our vulnerability and like admitting our, um, kind of, you know, fragility and uncertainty and stuff into our being as opposed to excluding it. And that's one of the big outcomes of this quest. Um, and, uh, so I find that just tremendously helpful because I feel like that that maps with an individual's illness experience, but it also, it so maps to our collective experience as well. And, and I just love the way that she kind of, um, I, I just feel like there's there's a lot. I'll have to go back and, and re-listen. There's just a lot there for, um, you know, practical advice and kind of how how do we think about this yeah, experience? Yeah. I, I have to give you a twenty five dollar copay now too, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've like Stephen. Stephen already owes me twenty five bucks. This is like hitting me too, buddy. I'm like, man, this is like good stuff. Like I totally get this idea. Like I know that I want to hand it over to Stephen now, but like exactly, it's just like I I'm that way. I, I I struggle with that. This idea of uncertainty. I want to get into clarity and fix it. And and sometimes if people get in the way, ooh, that's okay, right? Because uh, I want to get restitution uh, versus actually hanging on to uncertainty mm-hmm. and maybe being an accompaniment of somebody who's also uncertain, which I'm I'm uncomfortable with. So all this stuff, it's, it's hitting me hard. Stephen. Yeah, so I think as as a good epidemiologist, I think I, I'd, I, I would love to take sort of some of the things that Mark was talking about and, and think about them a little bit more sort of from the from the collective public health perspective that we're in as well, right? And so I think that one of the most, I guess, thought-provoking and, and in, at times really troubling things that I've seen is, is I think, something that we can interpret as, as this sort of difference between the restitution and the quest narrative sort of playing themselves out and... I know in a little while we were thinking about talking about this video that that you shared with us about two doctors from California, essentially talking about like what is this return to to real life, and they and they they almost take this like restitution sense and 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 like really really drive it home that like that is what we're going for. We need to sort of stop this this crazy lockdown thing, and and yeah, to a point where where they even like almost suggest using force to do so if we need to, right? Like it's, um, which is pretty wild. But, but the thing that, that really gave me pause about that was, was, was not even so much the, the taking it by force, but was when they were talking about some of the numbers and the ways that they were interpreting these numbers. And they were, they were talking about how, according to their data, right, they, that, you know, 97% of people recover from illness and that 90% of the three to four people who don't recover have underlying conditions. I was like, okay, well, like, Sure, that's that's great, and that's like very easy for someone to say who has biceps the size of my neck, who's like young and healthy, right? <laughs> you know, like that's that, like yeah, yeah. yeah like okay, it's fine. That's so good. <laughs> you know, you can you can you can you can be in that ninety seven percent. You can be pretty confident of that. But like, when did we stop caring about people who have underlying conditions? And like, how how can we as a, as a community sort of think about this? Like, not like I need to get my life and our collective societal life back to what it was, but like. You know, look, this is this is something new presented to us, and we're actually seeing the vulnerability of others through a new lens because we're getting new access into our own, and that's important. And and the first response to that is going to be to push it away, absolutely, and to hide behind you know whatever whatever facade of power that we can find to 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 shove that away because that's an incredibly comfortable thing to thing to face, uncomfortable thing to face, right? But but I think that's that's exactly what we need to go into, and that and I think that's precisely the barrier that separates this this you know the the first narrative from the second that that once once we sort of allow those that facade to fall then then we can enter into this much more truer narrative of a quest um collectively and i think that that's that's really the direction that we need to head um and that i hope we will head um as a result of all of this yeah i think you're you hit the nail on the head again because i was thinking 
just the other day, my wife helps me so much for this. I'll say something casually like, Oh, nobody would think that like, well, they wouldn't think that like, then she would respond. Well, have you, do you, have you been in those people's shoes? that have actually lived that. I'm like, Oh, I didn't even think about that. Like I'm so casually dismissive to other people's uh, worlds. And it's a, a huge fault of my own. And I thought and my wife has forced me and I've been for the first time this morning, I thought about like, what if I was this person, this demographic who I'm saying, you know what, let's open up the doors. Who cares? It's just the 3%. What if I was that hugely immune compri- compromised person and I'm hearing the rest of the world say, forget you, you're just, dis- you're disposable because we got to get our country back together. That just, that, that that's that that draws some hesitation to me mark yeah you know i um i just listened to a grand rounds when i was on my service week um that i found really really <clears throat> interesting and poignant um and it was from that our ethics and humanity center on campus we're talking about crisis standards of care um and so and in particular how that intersects with the disability community and so um crisis standards of care is a kind of a jargony term and essentially what that means and that's been especially passed around as uh, as we were approaching um, and like really working hard to flatten the curve that we didn't want to get to a place where we were un- in crisis standards of care, which is like we are all of a sudden forced um, to allocate our resources. You know, we have to decide on some level who gets ventilators, who gets dialysis, um, the way that business gets done as usual. You know, you, it, we do sure we allocate care on, on a certain level, you know, as it is, and our system is far from, from perfect, but this is a f- another big step in terms of the, you know, the way that happens. And, and how do we do that in a way that isn't, um, you know, deeply, not just dismissive, but, um, but essentially, you know, invalidates the experience and the lives and the, the quality of life of individuals who have underlying conditions, uh, you know, disabilities, different abilities, things like that. Uh, it's a very insightful, you know, conversation. Um, and I, I was very grateful to be part of a, an academic and intellectual community in which that kind of dialogue can happen. Um, because I think that's precisely, you know, we need to be talking about like, yes, we need to be talking about the nuts and bolts and, you know, and, and the, the realities, but this is a lived reality, you know, and we can't, we can't be so, you know, cavalier to think that, um, you know, that these experiences are, are not, super, super important and, and are, are not profoundly affected by all the decisions that we make on a policy level, on an individual level, things like that. I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say this because we wanted to say this before we recorded, make sure somebody said it, but if we could re-change, we could change our podcast name to It's Complicated. That would be what we're trying to say. Right, Mark? Right, Stephen? It's just <laughs> That's right. And, and then, and, and then uh, Angie, Angie uh, butted in. She said, how about It's Okay That It's Complicated, yes. which I like even better. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, so we'll change it to It's Okay That It's Complicated. It is. And, <laughs> and I... <laughs> So we're going to change that next week. It's okay. It's a comp. It's complicated. But I hear like yeah. there's going to be harder to say. It is. It's harder to say too. By the way, okay. but, like, I, I I sense this. Like I see uh, this gaslighting going on. I mean, gosh, when just FYI, people, when you start hearing people saying like, I, and this is random. It can be anything. I just read this. Who was trying to assert their authority onto this group of people saying, when I was your age, I thought this way. I'm like, man, when people start saying things like this, starting to dismiss you as being irrational because what you believe just by your demographic or wherever you're at, it's a huge red flag. I mean, I I mean, if there's, we're kind of going way off, we wanted to go on this, but I think my sis blew it up. We were talking about some really awesome stuff and that's really great. And we're going to stay here in this area. But I, I, you know, I kind of want to go back to, uh, Steve, what you were mentioning about this video, like in the end, it's, how do we know who to trust? Uh, this has almost 2 million views. That means it's getting a lot of publicity. 
we don't have nearly that many uh, 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 subscribers on our podcast as well. And here we are with these people getting tons of tons and, and saying that, uh, Stephen, this is that what they're finally dealing with is data. They're dealing with the data and no more modeling, right? Modeling, I'm thinking of that's Stephen. He's modeling, right? And I'm like, okay, Stephen, you got to talk in this just briefly. Just tell us. I mean, they're talking about data and that that's better. Your modeling sucks. You know, that's, that's what they're trying to say. They're saying that uh, stuff like, uh, gosh, that uh, the that Sweden uh, is on the same statistical playing field on death as Norway. And I looked it up and I'm just this this little, little peon guy who Googles stuff. And I did not see that all of a sudden completely different. So, and that it's no different than the flu. Um, uh, so can you talk back of just where is this coming from? Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, as, as we were talking about modeling the last time, and I think that, uh, you know, it's important to to remember that, like, we're, we're all doing modeling on some degree with every bit of information that comes through us, through our senses, through, you know, whatever we're reading, that all a model is is an interpretation of what's happening. So they're, they're running their own models implicitly in their minds to try to interpret the data that they're seeing. Just as psychologically, we run our models that, like, we feel this way. Why do I feel this way? And I'm, I'm trying to attribute it to a cause. And that, that, that attribution of a sensation to a cause is a model. And so there's, it's, it's kind of a fallacy. To, to, to make a distinction between data and models because you, you can't interpret data without without some kind of model. So I think that that's, um, you know, that's one of the things. And, and so the question then is like, what do we do with, with sort of this profusion of information and basically these different claims? Really what we're presented with is not, not differences in, in data so much as differences in interpretations of that data. And so they're, they're essentially presenting us with, with an alternative model and an alternative way of, of seeing sort of seeing things. Um, and I think that, you know, it's really, it's just important to bear in mind, um, sort of that, that our own sort of ability to be reflective, um, is, is again, you know, whether it's psychologically or in terms of just coming to terms with this pandemic and trying to interpret through the data that, that self-reflection is, is really the best and most reliable way forward. Um, I think we're, we really want someone to just tell us what the answer is. You know, I've, I've always wanted someone to just tell me what, tell me what the right thing to do is. Um, but, but the much harder work is to sort of, you know, hold, hold in our hands this, this, you know, these claims that, um, you know, the, that there's this raw data that we should be paying attention to. And, and some of the claims they make are, are you know, like, absolutely, there's, there, there is a real cost and a known cost to, to lockdowns and these sorts of things. But, you know, the fact is that, like, if, if we take a step back and like, listen to what they were saying, there's, they, they, they outlined this trajectory in which there was a justified lockdown at the beginning because we didn't know what was happening. And then what they're advocating for is, is a gradual release from that, which is sort of exactly what we're doing. And so I didn't totally understand like what, what the, what the, you know, what the hard feelings were about, about that whole thing. And especially scrolling through like the comments feed and it, there was just like a lot of like raw emotion that was coming out. And so I think that it was almost like we were using this as sort of a playing field for a separate conversation that we were trying to have. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. And it, maybe we can sort of hash through this amongst the three of us about like, what are these actual conversations that we're trying to have? Because it, it, I don't think it really has to do with comparing Sweden and Norway. It does to a certain extent, but really what we're trying to do, I think is something else. I think we're, we're trying to sort of make sense of the loss that we're feeling, the fear that we're holding and how we can maintain living in the midst of these things. Um, and, and so, and so we're sort of taking, you know, as, um, as your sister was saying, these, um, 
we all respond in different ways to this. Um, and sometimes, you know, when a person feels anxious, then they feel sad. Or sometimes when a person feels anxious, then they feel angry. And I feel like we're sort of, again, working this out on a collective scale. Um, and then, and then these, these videos become ways of sort of supporting our second response, whether that be anger or sadness or what have you. And so I think that if we can sort of be more reflective about what those responses are and where they're coming from, then we might actually have a chance of having a conversation. Whereas if we sort of try to stay on the level of the data, we end up missing each other. Maybe the moral of the story is uh, emotion is really important. And we need to always validate our emotions with what is true, like what's the real data before us. because otherwise it just becomes this megaphone to express our raw anger um, and then selectively pick things to, 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 as a confirmation bias to confirm our, 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 our emotion, right? <clears throat> but one thing I want to get back to you, Stephen, as well, is, <clears throat> excuse me, that we're, we're seeing a reopening, which you said, that's exactly what they're, you know, they're advocating for. Uh, could you talk briefly about the good, bad, and the ugly of the reopening? I mean, there it seems like some are opening rather slowly. Some seem to be opening up. Can you find in your own analysis what are some good examples? A one, a, a good example of a reopening, and where, where where might you find some caution in another example? Yeah, so I think that I mean. I- we're still a little bit too early in the reopening narrative to 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 point at places that have done it well and poorly. And the the unfortunate thing about this is that we'll only really know in hindsight. Um, you know, it's and hindsight is the same thing that will allow us to determine if you know, for example, Sweden took the right course of action. Um, but that said, I mean, I think that we need to we need to have a lot of grace with ourselves and realize that this was a very uncertain situation, and still is a relatively uncertain situation. But what we do know is that. Um, some action is required for sure. And so I think that that what I hope for out of reopening is, um, and what I've seen a number of states doing is is a reopening that is gradual and that is measured. And I think that that's both important from a public health perspective, because I think that, I mean, it's very clear both from past experience and from models, it's become maybe an ugly word now, but that, that rises in infection can quickly follow. And as long as we can stay on top of that, that's then, then I think we should be okay. Um, I think doing anything with, with too much haste is very, you know, potentially very dangerous. Um, but what I think I like even more about, about the reopening plans that do things gradually is what they communicate, which is that we're taking this seriously. We're still taking action towards towards reopening because we recognize that this is not really a sustainable path to just sort of maintain this indefinitely. But I think that the, what the, what that communicates is that okay, also on an individual scale, we we ought to remain vigilant as well and to begin going about our normal lives. But that 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 return to normal life, you know, it won't be this this restoration of what we had before. And I think that that's. That, it's essentially giving us a scaffold on which to construct our own narratives. And I think it's a much more real scaffold than one that says, all right, everything is fine. Everything is permitted. We're, we're ready to go back to, to whatever we had before. I love that. The, the idea that you're going to awake one day, like tomorrow, and have this extensive reopening of the state and somehow at the same day have amnesia of the past two months is highly unlikely. I was looking at this article that was a really uh, profound, like, in some sense, the lockdown didn't create the economy to collapse. Now, of course, it did do a significant damage. But we see that uh, up until lockdown, people were refusing or, or dropping off from doing things, right? Uh, Open Table has this great chart they share with the public access to everyone of in Colorado before the lockdown happened, days before, it saw about a 60% decrease 
in attendance at participants at restaurants. And there was an interview of, of, of a typical restaurant and saying, if you received a 20 to 30% decrease, 20 to 30, not 60, uh, would you be able to survive as a restaurant? And their, their response was absolutely not, right? So this idea of reopening um, uh, the economy is a great idea and all the more beneficial to do it slowly to, as you just said, Stephen, to show that we take this serious and we're trying to protect public health, which then hopefully, I mean, in my, my concept, bolsters my confidence that I'm being cared for and eventually provide more uh, courage for me to go out and begin to do more things and participate in the things that I used to participate as well as do new things as well. So um, I, 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 I clearly the lockdown, I don't think is opening, opening up the, the businesses radically is going to create anything, but people still being scared. My wife and I are not going anywhere anytime soon uh, as well. Uh, Mark, I wanted to throw it back to you as well. This is kind of related as well. We were talking about how these two people, they're doing the interview. I think they mentioned this. There's been an article about this. One of the hesitations is there's a lot of hospitals that apparently are just empty, right? They're, 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 they're being on, they can't receive, uh, they're, they're on whatever, COVID response. And so people who normally would get elective procedures can't get them, which is okay. And it sounds like there are people who are like heart attacks, uh, people coming in for heart attacks, strokes, other things. We're seeing a huge decrease in people in the hospital. Can you speak into this? Are you experiencing this at your hospital? Um, and what does this mean? Yeah, you know, I think I can speak sort of from a limited perspective. And I, and I think it's important, you know, anytime we talk about our experience on the ground and, you know, that recognizing the difference between anecdotal evidence, right, what I see in front of me and these stories that I'm witnessing, which are important and valid, uh, but a different kind of data than the type of data that Stephen's talking about that's driving some of these big societal models. So I could talk a little bit about anecdotally what I'm seeing in the hospital, um, absolutely, which is that, um, you know, as our uh, governors had freeze, frozen our, you know, elective procedures, we're seeing a decrease in the amount of patients with general medical issues and a huge decrease in patients, um, you know, post-operative and things like that in the hospital. Um, many of these things are the highly revenue-generating procedures um, that hospitals and hospital systems rely upon to be operating. So it's putting a lot of stress on a lot of hospital systems on a lot of different levels. Um, and, you know, so I think that there's sort of a baseline understanding amongst, um, you know, everybody who works in a hospital or for a hospital that there's, there's concern on some level that one of the major in revenue sources, you know, is, is being held down right now for good reason. Um, and we've seen a decrease in the amount of some of the, the, the patient population. We've seen an increase, of course, in our COVID population. Um, and, um, and that's just kind of the, where we're at in this, in this process where we're flexing. Um, there have been a lot of articles. Um, I, I've seen at least two um, that have been talking about these general medicine that people may be avoiding seeking care um, on their own. Um, so they're not coming in for heart attacks, for strokes, for other medical issues. Um, and, you know, we wonder, is that because people are afraid of coming to the hospital? It's because they don't want to be exposed to COVID in the ER? Um, where, you know, what's going on? Because there's nothing else, you know, we don't think that there are less, there are fewer heart attacks happening in this country. Um, one of the articles did point out, well, maybe people are, you know, engaging in the types of like, severe anxiety provoking or stress, you know, or strenuous exercise. And maybe there is actually like a measurable, maybe, but I, I get a sense that I think a lot of this is just that individuals with chronic disease or with acute issues may be avoiding medical care. 
Um, and so I think, you know, this is, um, yeah. So I think, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of complexities in my mind right now, just as I think about this issue. Um, uh, one is just the, what's going to happen when we start to reopen a little bit and we see these, you know, are we going to see a big wave? So, you know, we see a wave first of all the people coming back to the hospitals for elective procedures and that sort of thing. And then we see a second wave of, you know, more frequent COVID infections or something like that. Is this, is this going to be just sort of a different feel in the hospital? I think we're all wondering what that's going to look like. Um, but on kind of a broader level, as I take a step back, um, uh, you know, I think about a couple things. One is that, um, it is important to recognize. So I think, I think that our barrier, we shouldn't have a barrier for people to access the care that they need, right. As much as possible. Um, that, and, but at the same time, if people are choosing to get care outside of a institutional hospital system, you know, there are types of care that you can get at home. And there, there are certain ways that people care for each other, um, you know, outside of an institutionalized healthcare system. Now, not saying that you should do home remedies for, a heart attack for, you know, not for, for even for, you know, treatment. I'm not absolutely not advocating that, but I think sometimes our, our definition of what comprises care is very narrow and very technological. Um, and we're just, this is one of the many things that I think this, uh, this whole pandemic opens up a little bit is what are the ways that we're seeing instances of care, uh, maybe outside of our systematic approach, you know, this, this big kind of industrial medical system, um, that are also valid and important, um, and important to, to foster too. Um, so don't, you know, don't, don't be treating your, you know, your high blood pressure and your diabetes necessarily at home. Uh, but at the same time, you know, at the same time, it is, it is okay to care for each other and to recognize that. And that, you know, that some of maybe a small percentage of these fewer it's just people who are choosing to go about uh, their, you know, their illnesses in a different way. Um, you know, the other thing, the the last thing that I kind of think about, and this is just a perpetual um, kind of issue that we come back to, is how do we, um, both as individuals and as our systems as a whole, uh, continue to care for those populations, like the vulnerable populations that um, in which we're enmeshed, and recognizing that. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of evidence that the structural disparities in access of care are still highly operative in this scenario, and so it's not as if um, the pandemic wiped away you know all of the structural barriers and, and inequalities that were already existing, um, and we're seeing you know higher mortality in communities of color and we're seeing um just lots i just feel like it heightens issues you know it didn't create these issues but sure didn't make them go away um and so the other question in my mind is you know as we see sort of our you know who's in the hospital shift and the numbers shift and the volumes and all of this stuff how do we use this space and this kind of interlude you know to reframe the way that we think about um, how do we care for our neighbors? Um, you know, and, and I love that. I love the line. You guys know the old Star Trek with Dr. McCoy, where he's like, you know, I'm a, I'm a doctor, not a, I'm a doctor, not an escalator. I'm a doctor, not an engineer. You know, I'm a, I'm a doctor, not a philosopher. <laughs> so yeah, all of those things. I don't, I, I don't have a lot of, I don't have any answers to any of this. Um, but there's some of the things that are on my mind as I'm kind of thinking about, yeah. you know, the changes that we've seen over the last few months. 
It is a great way to end with this idea that it's okay, it's complicated. It's okay for it to be complicated. It reminds me of that quote from C.S. Lewis we started with episode number one. So it's a good way to, to do a little uh, capstone here or a bookend. That idea that uh, the, that sudden uh, turning on the lights in the cellar does not create the rats, but simply manifests the rats. And so here we are with this great sudden light that exposes so many difficulties in our country and so many opportunities to change, reform, and be of better service to those people in need. Uh, and that's, I think, the take-home for today. For today, uh, I think this has been a great episode. Uh, this might be the first one that Mark ever listens to, as he said, to, to review uh, what my sister said. Uh, but I hope you found this uh, enlight- uh, enlightened or uh, helpful. Uh, I sure did. Uh, I, I owe two $25 copays to my sister and to Mark for really hitting me hard during this episode. So I appreciate that. If you want more information uh, from Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E-R on Twitter, uh, me, any questions about the podcast, the show, M-A-T-T-B-O-E-T-T-G-E-R on Twitter as well. If you can support $5 a month, anything, pandemic slash, I'm sorry, patreon.com slash pandemic podcast or check in the show notes for just one easy easy little donation through PayPal or Venmo. Uh, I hope you guys have an awesome rest of your uh, Monday, and we'll see you on Thursday. Take care. Bye-bye.